the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Wow, it's cold in here. Is it cold in there, Sam? Sam is nodding yes. It, it, these two rooms, I think, are just icy. Not sure what the issue is, but we are going to soldier on because we're broadcast professionals of a sort. Anyway, well, today, a conversation with Owen Strahan. He's the author of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It, published by Salem Books. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. And we're also going to take a look at the growth of the Hispanic Protestant Church here in America, which should encourage every hearer. The body of Christ is on the move and the Hispanic church is leading the way in terms of an emphasis on evangelism and um, and growing. So we'll talk about that later in the program. Well, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum kicked out a dozen Catholic high school students. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, mayhem must have ensued. What kind of mischief were they about? Well, they were thrown out along with their chaperones. The reason? Wait for it. They were wearing beanies inscribed with. Pro-life messages. Apparently, this is intolerable in the 21st century America. On January 20th, students send their chaperones from Our Lady of Rosary School, based out of Greenville, South Carolina, travel to Washington, D.C. for the annual National March for Life. The group members were all wearing matching blue beanies with the words Rosary for Life, or excuse me, Rosary Pro-Life. That's what it said, Rosary Pro-Life. I know you're probably so offended, you're just, you've stopped. Well, the American Center for Law and Justice, representing the, uh, the parents of some of the students involved, alleged that the museum staff mocked the student. This is the staff, not other people who were just there at the uh, museum, but the staff mocked the students, hurled expletives at them, and claimed the museum was a neutral zone where political or religious messages were not allowed. Well, on Twitter, the mother of one of the students said the group was approached by a security guard who told them to either take off their beanies or leave the premises. Now, they weren't misbehaving. They weren't chanting. They were just simply there to view the museum. They happened to be wearing beanies with a message. Uh, Her daughter, according to this mother, allegedly told the guard they were wearing the, the hats to identify and find one another in the crowd before they were escorted out of the museum. Other people in the museum were wearing um, all sorts of different hats as they uh, traversed the exhibits, including the ACLJ executive director Jordan, or I should say, according to executive director Jordan Seculo of ACLJ. This is a clear and egregious abuse of the First Amendment. Perhaps we need to revisit the First Amendment. What does it actually say? What does it mean? Which protects uh, their right to free speech without government interference. And we are ready to take action, Seculo said. A government institution cannot censor an individual's speech, much less speech from the inherently Christian pro-life position. Well, Seculo um, noted that the uh, 
Smithsonian Institution is a federal entity that receives upwards of a billion dollars from the government, which means from taxpayers each fiscal year. The decision by the museum was an example of outrageous and abhorrent discrimination. A spokesperson for the museum released a statement about the uh, what transpired and said the incident did not adhere to their policy or protocols. That's typically the line. It doesn't adhere to our policy or protocols, but it happened. Our staff perpetrated the uh, uh, the activity, the action against these high school students wearing beanies who were quietly looking through the museum along with everybody else. Asking visitors to remove hats and clothing is not in keeping with our policy or protocols. We provided immediate training to prevent a reoccurrence of this kind of incident and have determined uh, steps to ensure this does not happen again. That's the museum's deputy director of communication. Well, Jay Seculo is going to follow up on that and we'll see uh, what comes of it. But it's just another example where young people are essentially told that in our culture, in this nation, your your views, views of a certain kind, are not welcome. And some of those students will likely um, take that message into their future without expressing their views because it will be costly to them. Let's hope that's not the case, but we're talking about teenagers, and one can only hope that this would help them to stand strong for what they truly believe and to think through the consequences of standing up for what's Right. Well, and what is certain to be another high profile addition to the docket this term, the Supreme Court is, was granted review in Groff versus DeJoy. It's a case in which the religious rights of employees will take center stage. The petitioner in that case, Gerald Groff, has asked the justices to determine whether his employer, the U.S. Postal Service, is required to provide a religious accommodation, excusing him from uh, work so that he can observe the Sabbath on Sundays. Well, Groff argues that he firmly believes he must, as Exodus 28 puts it, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When the Postal Service began delivering packages Sundays for Amazon, it initially accommodated Groff by exempting him from deliveries that day so that he could observe the Sabbath. But a few years later, the Postal Service withdrew his religious accommodation and replaced it with an arrangement that regularly asked him to violate his conscience by working every Sunday when he could not find a replacement. Well, Groff sued under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Subsection uh, I of uh, Title VII defines religion to include all aspects of religious observance and practice, as well as belief, unless an employer demonstrates uh, that he is um, unable to reasonably accommodate to an employee's religious observance or practice without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business, end quote. Well, a federal district court judge in Pennsylvania upheld the Postal Service's decision not to accommodate Groff. Uh, He applied to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, arguing that the Postal Service violated federal non-discrimination law by scheduling Groff to work on multiple Sundays and failing to provide him with reasonable accommodation. And although the Third Circuit agreed that the Postal Service had failed to provide him with a reasonable accommodation, it held that the service wasn't required uh, to do so here because this accommodation would have caused undue hardship to the employer. But just how much hardship is considered undue? Well, there's more that I could say about that, and I will after the break here. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're talking about a case in which 
the uh, Supreme Court is going to review a case involving an employee's religious rights, in this case with the U.S. Postal Service. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Talking about a case uh, that's going to be heard before the U.S. Supreme Court involving a uh, Mr. Goff, Goff versus DeJoy. Uh, he sued the um, the Postal Service under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination based on, among other things, religion. Well, a federal district court judge in Pennsylvania upheld the Postal Service's decision not to accommodate Groff, who wanted to and had been uh, given the opportunity to avoid working on the Sabbath. Well, he appealed to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, arguing that the Postal Service violated the federal non-discrimination law. And although the court agreed that the port, the Postal Service had failed to provide Goff with a reasonable accommodation, it held that it was just too cumbersome. Well, in 1977, in Transworld Airlines, Inc. versus Hardison, the Supreme Court concluded that an employer suffers undue hardship in accommodating an employee's religious exercise whenever doing so would require the employer to bear more than a de minimis cost. Well, this de minimis language doesn't appear anywhere in Title VII, but in the Hardison case, the high court read it into the statute anyway. Well, the plain language of undue hardship, which is found in the statute, has a clear and workable meaning. In fact, that... Um, Precise language has been used in other statutory contexts, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act. Well, these statutes never have been read to include a more than de minimis cost standard. However, uh, it has in this case. The Hardison standard has has heavily weighed the, uh, the scales in favor of the employer and against religious employees for decades. Well, Groff's aim is to change that. Well, in the Third Circuit ruling, the appeals court cited the statement in the Hardison decision that requires an employee to, or rather an employ, <clears throat> employer, to provide a religious accommodation at more than a de minimis cost is an undue hardship that excuses the employer from having to accommodate the employee at all. But the court went even further, holding that the undue hardship standard is met if a religious accommodation could have a potentially adverse impact on the business, other employees, rather than just on the business itself. Well, that's an outcome that would weaponize employee relations, pitting employee against employer in an unprecedented way or ways in this case. Think, for example, of an employee assigned to work Sundays so that a religious uh, colleague who wants to recognize the Sabbath can be accommodated. It wouldn't take much for the employee who works Sundays to claim the cost to him or her was more than de minimis, especially during football season, for example. Well, Groff has asked the Supreme Court to answer two questions. First, whether the more than de minimis cost test is refusing to provide religious accommodation properly interpreting Title VII. And second, whether an employer can show undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business simply by showing that a religious accommodation allegedly would burden the employee's co-workers rather than the business itself. Well, as Justice Thurgood Marshall noted in his Hardison dissent, the de minimis standard effectively nullified Title VII's promise of accommodation for religious employees. And that's the problem. Well, decades later, Justice Neil Gorsuch, he agreed, saying that Hardison dramatically revised, really undid Title VII's undue hardship test, and that the company had no obligation to provide the employee his requested accommodation 
because doing so would be costly to the uh, company. It would cost them something, anything more than, well, a trivial amount. Well, the Supreme Court has a chance to get it right on the question of employees who request religious accommodations. Returning to the plain meaning of the title, Title VII, would ensure that religious employees of all faiths are provided with meaningful accommodations in the workplace. Well, based on its recent willingness to revise and even overturn incorrect and historically inaccurate precedent, the Supreme Court might be willing to do just that in this case. But again, they have agreed to hear the case. So looking forward to that. Well, I've got breaking news. The pandemic is still over. Well, back in September, in the midst of an important midterm election campaign, the um, uh, president, Joe Biden, told uh, national TV the pandemic is over. It made good political sense. After all, he knew at the time that most of the country had moved on and Democrats had a midterm election to win. But when it comes down to handling or handing out government largesse, the administration is holding on for dear life to the pandemic emergency designation. And it's now going on three years. Perhaps that's why the president said yesterday that the emergency would end when the Supreme Court ends it. I thought he'd already done that, but now the Supreme Court will end it. Never let a crisis go to waste and all that. Well, the Biden administration has dragged its feet on ending the emergency. Now, that's not to suggest that uh, COVID is gone like the flu. It will remain with us. But the pandemic is over, which the president himself announced. Um, So the administration has dragged its feet, ending the emergency because it gives him certain powers to raise funds and to do things he otherwise wouldn't have the authority to do. Grudgingly setting an expiration date on May 11th. Nothing says science quite like setting a date. Well, in response, House Republicans passed the Pandemic is Over Act on Tuesday, 220 to 210. Speaker Kevin McCarthy noted that 47 percent of the federal workforce was still not back to work at the office, saying this bill would make federal employees provide the service that the taxpayers are paying them for. Well, this wouldn't normally concern the regime because um, there's a. A roadblock in the Senate, not to mention a veto threat, but it appears the White House could be worried about public perception. To that end, the Office of Management and Budget countered in the Statement of Administration policy that ending the state of emergency prematurely would create wide-ranging chaos and uncertainty throughout the health care system by threatening the extra Medicaid funding that states were receiving, as well as disrupting providers and putting telehealth for veterans in jeopardy. So I guess the uh, pandemic isn't over again. Well, the statement also made the claim that enacting the GOP legislation would bring an end to the Title 42 policy at the border. However, the Washington Republican Kathy McMorris Rogers stated any decision to end Title 42 is not tied to the public health emergency. The president alone will be responsible for the decision to end Title 42. So we can take that arrow out of his quiver. Then there's uh, Biden's student loan heist, which is also justified based on supposedly continuing pandemic hardship. And if there's a political benefit to be derived, so be it. Well, that's likely what the president referred to with his bizarre comment about the Supreme Court ending the pandemic because the justices are weighing the legality of his student loan um, uh, scheme. Um, which is clearly unconstitutional. It's a bid to wipe out some student loans at the expense of taxpayers who didn't enjoy the benefits of those loans. The same could be said of court battles over masks and vaccine mandates. Of course, those policies were always about the politics, not the law. Uh, The political benefits, regardless of the outcome, 
maybe especially when the Republicans beat them in court to take away money or protection from a needy and vulnerable group of former students. But meanwhile, there may not be much reason to trust all those government employees who've been working from home either. Tens of thousands of federal employees stole taxpayers' money by filing bogus pandemic loan requests, according to a report in The Washington Times. It's an allegation that infuriated Iowa Republican Senator Johnny um, Ernst, who has joined fellow Senator Rand Paul in investigating the missing funds. It is appalling, she wrote, for anyone fortunate enough to have the reliability of a government paycheck to take advantage of financial assistance intended to provide a lifeline to Americans who lost their jobs and were unable to work as a result of COVID-19, the pandemic. Well, these misbehaved bureaucrats have also tarnished the reputation of the other dedicated civil servants, which I'm guessing is the vast majority, many of whom worked long hours and essential jobs during the pandemic. End quote. Well, again, um, never let a crisis go to waste. If you can line your pockets from it, the population has moved on from COVID. But Team Biden obviously just can't let go of the emergency powers that came along with it. We'll see what the court decides with regard to the student loan bailout and whether or not that will in the president's uh, future comments be tethered, as he suggested most recently, uh, to ending the COVID emergency. Eh, We'll see. Hey, General Mike Minahan, a four star uh, with the Air Force, a general with the Air Force, sent out a memo uh, to his subordinates warning of a war with China by the year 2025. We'll share that memo with you uh, when we return. But I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, a conversation I had with Owen Strahan, author of Christianity and Wokeness. Well, General Mike Minahan, a four-star with the Air Force, sent out a memo to his subordinates warning of a war with China by the year 2025. In the memo, he wrote, My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Xi Jinping secured his third term and set his war council in October 2022. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a reason. United States presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a distracted America. Xi's team, reason and opportunity are all aligned for 2025, end quote. Well, General Minihan went on to explain that training will be more rigorous and have increased risks <clears throat> as they prepare excuse me, for the impending storm of war that he's seen on the horizon. Biden's Department of Defense quickly contradicted this uh, procrastination, uh, stating that it's not representative of the department's view on China. Hmm. So the Department of Defense, as opposed to a general, a four-star general in the Air Force, Um, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder of the Department of Defense further elaborating, saying the national defense strategy makes clear that China is uh, the placing challenge of uh, the pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. And our focus remains on working alongside allies and partners to preserve a peaceful, free and open Indo-Pacific, end quote. Well, Minahan is merely voicing what um, any astute observer fears after watching the chaos that the administration has allowed to happen and has even provoked on the world stage. So writes Emmy Griffin on the subject. America has been crippling, mil- crippled militarily and its people are extremely polarized politically. 
Conservative commentator, commentator Gary Bauer voiced fears that Minahan may lose his job over the memo because our military is no longer a serious one, end quote. It has never been more clear than in the past two years that wokeness is killing our military. He went on to say between pushing one agenda in recruitment videos and General Mark Milley advocating for critical race theory and other woke ideology, our troops are not as battle ready as they should be. The ideology that centers sexual identity as the core concern is contradictory to the selflessness and service identity necessary for the defense of the country. CRT labels the military and virtually every American institution inherently racist. All these things are conspired to hurt military recruitment. He went on to say our military is also low on munitions. According to the New York Times, the prospect of growing military threat from both China and Russia is driving bipartisan support for a surge in Pentagon spending. Even Congress is acknowledging that we have military readiness issues. Some of our stockpiles of weapons have been nearly depleted and it will take years to restock them. Our current leadership is weak on foreign affairs. We also have poor, a poor record in recent years of supporting our allies, and Taiwan is right to be worried. The apathy of the, um, those in power toward China's um, predations is perfectly exemplified in the former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and her immediate walk back of assurances of support when she returned to the states. To put it mildly, the president was ineffective in deterring Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine, even saying... Uh, that a small incursion wouldn't uh, provoke action from the United States. Putin's invitation came via Biden's unnecessary and disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, which also led to the deaths of 13 American service members and untold numbers of Afghans. Well, China sees its opportunity growing with each passing day as highly motivated to become the global hegemony, and it cannot do what the U.S. Um, do that with the U.S. holding sway over the production of semiconductors, an all-important part of making modern a modern-day tech work. Well, ever since China was allowed in the uh, global scene with the hope that capitalist influences would help change the culture, it has slowly been grabbing more and more control over the United States. And the concern is, at least among some, that this will ultimately culminate at some point in the next couple of years, today being 2023, And this um, general, Mike Minahan, looking at 2025 with all these details that I mentioned that he wrote about converging at the same point, there's something to certainly pray about. Well, the United States is tracking um, warlike announcements by Iran's regime that it deployed two military ships to um, Brazil that are also headed for the Panama Canal, where Tehran declared it will establish a military presence. A U.S. State Department spokesperson said on Tuesday that we are aware of these claims by Iran's Navy. We continue to monitor their attempt to have a military presence in the Western Hemisphere, end quote. Well, the Iranian regime's uh, controlled news outlet, Tehran Times, reported Saturday that Iran's 86th flotilla warship is now sailing along the western shores of Latin America. The Navy second in command said, well, uh, it was learned on Tuesday from a Western security source that Iranian warships have not yet docked in Brazil. Senator Marco Rubio said in a statement that Iran's growing presence in the Western Hemisphere should come as no surprise as the administration has a history of appeasement and engaging with authoritarian regimes. Tehran's ability to expand its military presence in our hemisphere should be a warning sign, especially as it seeks to seeks the support of left wing Marxist regimes that will undermine peace and stability throughout the region. There are other uh, representatives who have also expressed their concern about the uh, partnership and presence 
in Latin America. In other news, jeopardizing retirement, Representative Manchin joined GOP, I should say Senator Manchin joined GOP senators to challenge President Biden's woke investments rules politicizing America's 401ks, which is a violation of the law. She's running. Nikki Haley is set to join former President Donald Trump in the race for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. And in a potential warning sign, Iran's military is reportedly sending those warships to America's backyard. For the American people, Speaker McCarthy is set to meet with President Biden as the debt ceiling fight looms. He did so today and was rather optimistic as he exited. In a Second Amendment win, the state's uh, state of Illinois lost an appeal on Tuesday after a lower court judge issued a restraining order on a newly enacted ban on some semi-automatic rifles, as well as high-capacity magazines. Illinois Governor J.P. J.B. Pritzker signed the gun control law on the 10th of last month, which bans the sale and distribution of assault weapons, high-capacity magazines and switches, which went into effect immediately after he approved it. Effingham Court Judge Joshua Morrison issued a temporary restraining order, however, against the law on the 24th of last month, preventing it from being enforced. Morrison's ruling came in response to a lawsuit from four gun manufacturers and merchants, 850 individuals who argue that the law was enacted improperly, didn't have proper public input, adding that it violated the state and U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause in providing exemptions for some groups of people based on their occupation or training. Negative territory. President Biden's approval rating remains well underwater, far below most recent presidents. Representative Omar's lashed out at Speaker McCarthy for personally whipping votes against her. And part of the problem, an NBC insider says a reporter messed uh, messed up by uh, running the uh, Paul Pelosi story on just one tip. It has since been released in full. Wales overwoke. The Biden administration is facing major blowback from lawmakers, conservation groups and environmentalists for the construction of offshore wind turbines that threaten whale populations. Activists groups like Protect Our Coast, New Jersey, Save Right Wales and others have voiced concerns that coastal wind turbines built amid a Biden administration push for green energy are hurting an already endangered species. Marine mammals, whales, porpoise, seals are sensitive to underwater sound and are extremely vulnerable to harm during offshore wind construction. Damage to their hearing kills their ability to navigate and communicate permanently, according to Protect Our Coast, New Jersey uh, website. Others in the government say there's no evidence to support that claim. Reading between the lines, a classic novel has been hit with a gender stereotyping trigger warning by a university. A London university has given a classic novel by renowned English writer Jane Austen a gender stereotyping trigger warning for students. Now, if you're in university and you're reading something from uh, the 19th century, wouldn't you think that they would get that on their own? But no, they have to be warned that there might be triggers. Well, Jane Austen's a gender stereotyping trigger warning for students Uh, According to academics at the University of Greenwich, have alerted students that the 1817 satirical novel Northanger Abbey contains sexism and toxic relationships and friendships, according to content notes obtained by The Telegraph. Well, the novel is included in the curriculum of the university's Gothic literature course. I'm not sure what you would expect in a Gothic literature course that would need to be flagged, but it comes with an additional general warning that the class consists of elements that students might find disturbing, like so much of the world. Well, Northanger Abbey, it tells the story of a young woman 
who learns about traditional gender roles through her experience with other family and friends and her love interest as narrator Austin ironically and sarcastically comments on the power imbalance between men and women in the 19th century and mocks the idea of women pretending to lack intelligence to please men. So I guess college students who read it wouldn't get the point and would have to be warned that this may be disturbing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. A reminder in the second hour, Owen Strahan, author of Christianity and Wokeness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. President Biden cited Pope Francis when discussing taxpayer-funded abortion. The Catholic bishop of Tyler, Texas, denounced the president's fake Catholicism and called on the Vatican to weigh in after the president said Pope Francis and some bishops didn't oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. Well, Tom Brady, he's announced he's retiring, this time for good. No, really, he's going to retire. He's won seven Super Bowl championships and the seven-time Super Bowl champion who holds every major NFL passing record announced in an emotional beachside video he was retiring for good. We'll report back tomorrow to see if that's actually the case. California is a stubborn holdout in the water deal. While California suffers under a nearly two-decade drought, Water access and water rights are no insignificant issue. Recently, six of the seven states that depend on water from the Colorado River signed a new water allocation proposal meant to update water use in the region. Some 40 million people and $5 billion agriculture industry rely on water from the Colorado River, so it's imperative that a deal is worked out. A consensus deadline between all seven states in the region was needed by January after an August deadline was missed last year. Yet California remains the lone holdout. Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah and Wyoming have all agreed to a proposal to cut water usage and conserve two million acre feet. California, meanwhile, has proposed cutting 400,000 acre feet. The region is split into the upper basin states and the lower basins of which California is the biggest water user. CNN ratings have collapsed. Bill Maher maybe to the rescue. The week of January 16th through the 22nd, the uh, cable outfit CNN experienced its worst ratings week in nearly a decade. According to the rap data from Nielsen, few listeners were watching. CNN hasn't seen ratings this bad since May of 2014. To put it succinctly, CNN is failing uh, and falling far behind Fox News and other Outlets um, like MSNBC sinking viewership, which has been a consistent problem for the outlet ever since Donald Trump left office, likely has uh, much to do with Bloomberg. President Biden is pushing an EV tax credit, which is worse for the environment. Biden is giving free publicity to the Hummer EV, a 4.5 ton behemoth, so inefficient that it pollutes more per mile than a gas powered sedan. Well, the president was uh, slammed Monday for touting his $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles while promoting an electric truck that costs over $100,000 and has been plagued with issues. He claims his claims about the tax credit are somewhat misleading as the overwhelming majority of new electric vehicles, approximately 70 percent, don't qualify for the tax credit. Senator Senate Republicans rather sent a letter to the president demanding spending cuts. Nearly half of the Senate Republican conference has signed on to the letter warning the president that um, they will not vote for any bill to raise the nation's debt limit unless it's connected to spending cuts. The U.S. has accused Russia of violating the nuclear arms treaty. 
Russia has violated the new START treaty, cutting long-range nuclear arms by refusing to allow on-site inspections and rebuffing Washington's request to meet to discuss its compliance concerns, the U.S. State Department said in a report to Congress on Tuesday. The State Department's findings that Moscow is in non-compliance with an accord marks the first time the U.S. has accused Russia of violating the treaty, which entered into force in 2011. Utah's anti-groomer bill is more bark than bite. Well, it was noted yesterday that Utah Governor Spencer Cox signed legislation that was touted as protecting children from being subjected to gender-affirming care. That's what they call it now, gender-affirming care, when it does just the opposite, as it banned the uh, giving of puberty blockers, hormones, and transition surgeries to children. Well, there's a big caveat in that legislation, however, as the bill forbids the gender-affirming care only to those children who have not been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So if a child, or more accurately, his or her parents, gets a pro-transgender doctor to diagnose gender dysphoria, then the law doesn't apply. That's a gaping loophole. President Biden says climate change is a bigger threat to humanity than nuclear war. And the president and Speaker McCarthy met at the White House amid the debt ceiling fight. Republican Representative George Santos plans to recuse himself from committee assignments. And Nikki Haley will formally announce that she's running for president. All GOP senators and Senator Manchin challenged the president's ESG climate investment rule, politicizing Americans' 401ks and retirement. An Iranian illegal immigrant who was on terror watch list has been caught near the southern border. Al Sharpton gave the eulogy at the Tyree Nichols funeral in Memphis earlier today. The IRS is three times more likely to audit blacks amid the racism claims the president plans to spend billions to hire 87,000 new IRS employees. Little to no difference, a massive mask meta study undermines the remaining COVID mandates. And in a bit of satire, the president ends the same COVID pandemic for the third time. Well, on this day in history, 1790, the U.S. Supreme Court convenes for the first time in New York. 1862, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, a poem by Julia Ward Howe, is published in the Atlantic Monthly. 1942, during World War II, The Voice of America broadcasts its first program to Europe, relaying it through the facilities of the British Broadcasting Corporation in London. 1943, during World War II, one of America's most highly decorated military units, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up almost exclusively of Japanese Americans, is authorized. 1946, Norwegian statesman Tyrg V. Lee, or something very like that, is chosen to be the first Secretary General of the United Nations. 1960, four black college students began a sit-in protest at a Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, where they'd been refused service. 1968, Richard Nixon announces his bid for the Republican presidential nomination. 1979, Iranian religious leader Ayatollah Ruli Khomeini, he receives a tumultuous welcome in Tehran as he ends nearly 15 years of exile. 1982, Late Night with David Letterman premieres on NBC. 1994, Jeff Galuli, Tanya Harding's ex-husband, pleads guilty here in Portland to racketeering for his part in the attack on figure skater Nancy Kerrigan in exchange for a 24-month sentence and a $100,000 fine. 2003, the space shuttle Columbia breaks up during re-entry, killing all seven of its crew members. Commander Rick Husband, Pilot William McCool, Payload Commander Michael Anderson, Mission Specialists Kalapana Chawla, David Brown, and Laurel uh, Clark, 
and payload specialist Elon Rahman, the first Israeli in space. 2018, on this day in history, Republican State Representative Don Shooter is expelled from the Arizona House because of a lengthy pattern of misconduct, making him the first state lawmaker in the U.S. to be booted out since the Me Too movement emerged. And finally, on this day in history, also in 2018, a judge orders a Wisconsin girl, Morgan Geyser, to be committed to a mental hospital for 40 years for stabbing a classmate when she was 12 years old to curry favor with a fictional horror character, Slender Man. Well, a regulatory move within Mexico's agricultural sector has U.S. farmers concerned it will corner their corn crop production. Most farmers, um, this generation and younger, have never even used conventional farming. So says uh, Hinkle Farms' Elizabeth Hinkle. Uh, We're not set up to do it. We don't have the equipment to do it, she went on to say. Um, So it would be a huge investment if we had to go back to growing conventional. And on top of that, our yields would be decreased. Well, American farmers are headed to Capitol Hill to voice their concerns about Mexico's proposed ban on U.S. imports of genetically modified corn, reportedly uh, warning the move could become the most catastrophic thing to happen to corn farmers. Mexico represents America's biggest buyer of corn, purchasing more than $10 billion worth of yellow and white corn, U.S. corn, last season alone. Even though here in Pennsylvania, she went on to say, our corn stays fairly local. Our price is still determined by the uh, by the board. So if that price goes down, it's going to affect farmers all over the United States, no matter where their corn is being sold. Farmers remain husky about Mexico's GMO ban as they fear it'll hit their bottom line. I just can't even picture Um, In my mind, what this is going to do, Hinkle went on to say, it's farmers from one end of the United States to the other. It doesn't matter where you sell it or what you it's used for. It's going to have an effect. And these U.S. farmers are sounding the alarm uh, on this single most catastrophic thing heading for corn crops that could make a significant uh, difference. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, a conversation with Owen Strahan. Christianity and Wokeness, and later in the program, we'll look at the growing Hispanic church in America. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I've been looking forward to the conversation we're just about to have with Dr. Owen Strand. He's the author of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. It's published by Salem Books. He points out that wokeness has been a term that's widely used by the media and the left since 2014. Well, since then, the idea of wokeness has bled into the culture, into television, and now even our churches. Preachers are speaking on critical race theory, telling their congregations that silence is violence and that whiteness is white supremacy. And while these pastors might mean well, this so-called woke gospel is not true justice or true Christianity. Well, Dr. Um, uh, Strand is the provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and senior fellow with the Family Research Council. He's become an expert on social justice and wokeness. In his latest book, Christianity and Wokeness, uh, Dr. Strand writes about the alternative religion of wokeness, one that is far from Christ's teaching. And by diving into the teachings of critical race theory and its problematic cousin, wokeness, Dr. Strand has a simple warning to the American church. By embracing wokeness, you're embracing teaching antithetical to the gospel. 
And that's an important point we need to uh, to ponder here today. Well, again, Dr. Strand is a provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary and a senior fellow with the Family Research Council, earned his Ph.D. in theology from uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's the author of some 20 books, including Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind. He lives with his family in Conway, Arkansas, and I am just delighted that he is with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us for having me back on. I really appreciate it. Well, this is such an important topic, and I fear that many of us are using the words or even referencing some of the concepts without fully understanding what they mean or the implications of it. So this is such a timely book. And as the title would suggest, this book is written uh, for those who embrace a Christian worldview or at least have some curiosity about a Christian worldview to discover whether or not it's compatible. Wokeness or critical race theory is compatible uh, with a biblical worldview. Yes, that's exactly right. Fundamentally, wokeness means uh, being awake to the nature of America as a systemically racist and uh, unjustly unequal society. So when you wake up to that, you become essentially an activist against that situation, that complex of factors. And then critical race theory means uh, this this academic discipline that signals this academic discipline that trains you to understand that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics such that white people effectively function as oppressors who foment white supremacy, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And people of color are uh, are structurally oppressed people, uh, no matter what their situation is, whether they are millionaires or poor, it does not matter. That's how critical race theory approaches uh, our society. So these these ideologies, as you very rightly said just a minute ago, are cousins. They're very similar. They're simpatico with one another, and they pose a major threat to the Christian faith today. Tragically, very few Christians are being warned about these mm-hmm. systems, and even fewer still are being trained to understand them. And so that means that the gospel and the Christian worldview more generally is in danger of being hijacked today. Now, one of the things I want to emphasize before we move on is as an African-American, I know that racism exists in this country, but I wholly reject critical race theory. One of the uh, components of it is there's no redemption. It's not a, a matter of identifying racism as it exists either systematically or in the life of the individual. There's no redemption. You will always be the oppressor. I will always be the victim. There's no reconciliation or restoration. You are perpetually owing the victim, which would be me in this case. Um, and it just, it's again, antithetical to the Christian principle of redemption through Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can kind of understand how it has a sort of secular pull to it. If you take grace out of your worldview, if you take forgiveness and unity in Christ out of your way of thinking, honestly, this way of thought makes a lot of sense because it's basically a world of holding one another to account writ large across generations. Now, I don't mean to to indicate that these concepts are sound, but I do mean if you deny the existence of forgiveness, of grace, of getting over past sins, of making societal progress, if you believe that the, the evils of the past can never be overcome, then this is the system for you, because it allows you basically to stereotype people, to buy into race essentialism, the, the vision that 
there is a hard and fast reality of whiteness and blackness, for example, that separates us as human people. And then you can live in this kind of perpetual victimhood cycle where, yes, America has real failings and sins in its past. Uh, it, it, it hasn't magically extinguished them in the present, and we're going to fight partiality in the future. But this system teaches you that America is actually more racist today mm -hmm. in 2021 than in the days of white supremacy in the 19th century. And that is a claim that shows you that we are not in a system that is actually working against racism and for justice here. We are working with a system that is pro-racism in a new form, even though very few people know it to be that. Mm. And unlike the civil rights movement, the goal isn't a level playing field where we all have equal opportunity uh, to develop our gifts and to pursue opportunities. That's that's not the goal. It is to foment the, the kind of disunity that says you will owe me always and I will uh, take from you always because that's just your nature and there's no getting around it. Yes, it's very similar to when in a personal relationship we reject forgiveness. Uh, we all know that there can be hard relationships that we face. Every one of us does in some form. And we think in certain instances, I'm going to hang on to my bitterness here. Uh, this person has come to me and asked forgiveness, but it feels freeing to be angry, uh, to, to be a victim in our own mind. In reality, that that is to be trapped. That is to be imprisoned by your anger. And, and tragically, uh, that is what wokeness does. It traps you in a cycle of anger and victimhood where you never can move past America's past failings, especially those that were codified in law and policy. And instead, you bring the, the anger of the past into the, into the present, and you then indict people who have had no participation, let's say, in slavery or Jim Crow or segregation, and, and are often bewildered by the claims of critical race theory. But that's what this system trains you to do. In doing so, it doesn't free you. It's not, it's not solving the problem of racism. It's actually entrapping you. Satan is actually behind the system. And, and he loves it because there's no forgiveness in it, there's no peace in it, and there certainly is no gospel unity in the name of Jesus Christ in it. We're talking about a neo-Marxist system. Uh, before we go to break here, can you give us a definition of critical race theory and wokeness? Yes, critical race theory is the view that America is divided along the lines of racial power dynamics with white people effectively in neo-Marxist terms as oppressors, people of color as the oppressed. Wokeness is the broader mindset and mentality, I believe, that embracing critical race theory creates. So lots of people are never going to read a page of CRT, but they can be woke, which means being awake to the nature of systemic racism and inequality in America. We're talking this afternoon with uh, Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. The book is published by Salem Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Owen Strand. He is the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. Now, when you think about the broader culture, there are major concerns about critical race theory and this call to become woke. But as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, I'm most concerned about the problematic elements of the church embracing critical race theory. So let's talk about why it's problematic and where you see this headed if the church doesn't wake up. Yeah, great question. As I say in uh, Christianity and Wokeness, this new book, fundamentally, this is not the way to view the world because critical race theory, if embraced, actually trains you in neo-racism. It's grounded in race essentialism, or what is sometimes called strategic essentialism. Critical race theory is not actually grounded in the Christian faith or in a foundational truth system. It's grounded in midair. Its feet are firmly planted in midair. It's a postmodern system, but it trains us to at least act as if race is a real thing. And in doing so, it then builds off of that and says the history of America means that whiteness effectively creates a system of white supremacy that entraps people of color. And so we need to recognize this is a system that is making truth claims, not truth claims that are grounded in Christianity, uh, but truth claims that are grounded in neo-Marxist ideology. And the Christian faith speaks a much, much better word. It trains us that everybody is made in the image of God, that we have all fallen in Adam, Genesis 3, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, and that we do all commit sins against one another. We do show partiality against one another, including because of skin color and background, and that is vile. That's sinful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Christian faith actually gives you the moral framework to know that racism is wrong, unlike postmodernism, which has no such foundation. Now, do critical race theorists... Um, see uh, CRT running parallel to Christianity in that social justice is ultimately the goal? Or do they, as neo-Marxists, reject the notion of religion or Christianity in particular as being part of the problem? That's a great question. You hear different tones from different people. Probably the best known woke voice in America today is Ibram X. Kendi, mm-hmm. a professor at Boston University. And Kendi rejects the form of Christianity, some sort of undefined form, but he rejects Protestant Christianity for what he calls anti-racism. And he has gone so far as to say that, this is a direct quote, anti-racism is life. And what he seems to mean by that is that even though he doesn't give you a fully coherent religious worldview, actually, Uh, his version of wokeness can function in those terms. If you will embrace being an anti-racist and working for social justice through anti-racism, you will end up uh, partaking of life. You will end up fully living. So we need to recognize that what voices like Kendi's offer us may not have a fully mapped out religious worldview, but they at least are functioning as if their worldview is the true one, and they and that we should not follow the Christian worldview, we should follow them. And there we see that these are oppositional systems. You cannot blend Christianity with critical race theory or with wokeness or with intersectionality the way people say you can. Now, how does this 
uh, align with or does it align with um, the liberal view of Christianity in which the general moral good, as opposed to the redemption of the individual soul through Jesus Christ, is ultimately the goal? Does this appeal to um, the, the, the more of a liberal view of, of Christianity? That is the point I make in the opening pages of this book. Uh, I think that this is basically a racialized form of the social gospel of a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. So I, I think this is new in one sense in that it's strongly focused on solving so-called systemic racism, which is basically a made-up concept today in America from the left. But I, I do think it has all the, the infrastructure. It, it's built on the skeleton of the social gospel of a hundred years ago, which we thought in Protestant circles basically died out. Uh, Georgie, it turns out that the social gospel is not dead at all. No, It's back. It has a new spin. It has a strongly racial spin uh, that fits our age because everybody in America is terrified of being even called a racist. If you even throw the charge of racism in many people's direction, they, they will fall to the ground. They won't think it through. They won't defend themselves. They won't separate genuine partiality, true racism, so-called, uh, from, from fake racist charges. They will simply flee. And uh, anti-racists and woke voices and critical race theorists know that. And very, very few people will respond to the system. Very few people will destroy the stronghold in the Second Corinthians 10, 3 to 6 sense. And that is a huge part of why the racialized social gospel is advancing so imperially today. Mm. And why your book, uh, Christianity and Wokeness, is so important right now so that we can understand what's happening. And the fact that, from my perspective, this is a devilish plot to try to weaken the church and undermine God's calling on his people. Now, can you explain the concepts? You kind of touched on them a little bit. The concepts of white privilege and white supremacy, which, again, are used to bludgeon uh, Caucasians in our culture. Yeah, white privilege basically means that because white people are the dominant group, the majority group in American culture, there's just a horde of benefits that they have that people of color cannot have. So America is not an equal society um, because wokeness functions out of the the ideology of, of neo-Marxism, and it believes that everybody should have equality of outcome. It believes that fundamentally to even have a majority culture is basically wrong. So white privilege is a very bad thing. I say this in the book, Georgine, but I think much of what woke voices call white privilege and indict as sinful and wrong is simply a function of having a majority culture. Mm-hmm. Most countries in the world have a majority culture. And there are some societal norms in Japan or in Russia or in Nigeria uh, or in Canada, places in Canada. Majority culture should not be understood as perfect, nor I, do I think, at least in a lot of places, should it be under, understood as inherently fundamentally evil. It's really a blend of things. But what critical race theory and wokeness do is poison majority culture, weaponize majority culture, and tell us uh, when you have a lot of white people, you have this condition of white supremacy. That's the second term you asked about. White supremacy does not refer to burning crosses in front yards anymore. It refers to what happens when white people are white out in public. 
And that means that white people are constantly transmitting the biopower of whiteness. Uh, they're committing all sorts of what are called microaggressions in conversation, where because they are the, the majority group, they are effectively oppressing people, whether or not they ever say something racist or do something racist or not. So as you said a minute ago, this is a devilish system because it tells you that you are inherently racist as a white person or if you're somebody who hasn't challenged white supremacy. And then if you deny that you're a racist, it says, see, your denial proves that you're a racist. So it has you either way. It has all the exits covered. And that's one of the ways that it shows that it is uh, a bankrupt system. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation this afternoon with Dr. Owen Strand, the author most recently of Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm so honored to have uh, Dr. Owen Strand uh, as our guest this afternoon. His book, uh, most recently, Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. I think there's something appealing in general to believers who want desperately to be relevant in the culture, who want to address uh, issues of wrong and to try to set them right. Uh, the, the phrase social justice just appeals to the Christian Christian heart where you want to to see things um, uh, repaired. And yet um, there is a move afoot that uh, would would draw us in and draw us away from what the scriptures teach. And I appreciate so much what this book, Christianity and Wokeness, does in helping to inform us not only what it means, how it's infiltrating the church, but what we can do uh, to stop it. Uh, because as followers of Jesus, our primary concern, I mean, the culture is going to go uh, its way. But what I'm primarily concerned about as a Christian is what does this mean for the church? And are we being distracted and, and lured away from what God is calling us to do? Now, Dr. Strand, do you think that um, uh, there is a purposeful indoctrination happening in the media, in the culture and schools and even in our churches? And what does that mean for believers and the church moving forward? Yeah, there are hard forms and softer forms. The harder forms are typically in our public school classrooms today, where critical race theory is definitely being taught. Uh, the left has reacted to the backlash, the just backlash against CRT and wokeness by saying that conservatives and the far right are making CRT this boogeyman, uh, and, and they're, they're protesting that um, teaching against racism is happening in schools, and, and so the far right doesn't want to acknowledge racism. Again, it's, it's, it's creating this boogeyman. That is not at all the case. Um, CRT is very clearly getting into our schools. To give just one example, the Buffalo school system uh, was outed through internal documents uh, as teaching that white people are effectively white supremacists, because the kind of ideas that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so this is out there. This is, this, is, this is in the mix. We should assume it's in the boardroom. Uh, it's, it's now increasingly in movies. It's in public schools. It's in entertainment. And it's definitely getting into the church. In many cases, it gets into the church in a soft form. And that's, that's the way it works with the social gospel as well. Very few Protestant pastors are going to stand up and give an hour-long diatribe about critical race theory in, in a pro-CRT way. What they're going to do is they're going to Christianize it, and that's compromised. But they're going to say, you need to think through white fragility, 
white privilege, white supremacy. We need to think about um, uh, systemic racism and structural inequality. And that's the way that, that wokeness is getting into the church today, through the usage of those terms and then through literature that promotes this worldview, even though many pastors will say they're not themselves fully woke or fully pro-CRT. They're just trying to introduce some of the ideas for consideration. And it's through such weak and compromised leadership that the church is being influenced by the woke social gospel. Hmm. My next question was going to be, what are some of the signs of a woke church? And you've answered that question. But how can we address our concerns with church leadership? It, it can be awkward. It can be uh, challenging, strained. It, how can we approach as parishioners and, and perhaps among our listeners today, some leaders in the church? How can we do that in a way that's consistent with a, a Christian worldview, but addresses what's going wrong? Great question. As I say in Christianity and Wokeness, my new book, life is too short to sit under unsound doctrine. So what you need to do if these ideas are getting into your church, and you will be able to tell, you will know when secular sociology is coming into the pulpit and and the preacher is no longer standing upon the Word of God. If you hear the kind of ideas that we have talked about in this show, uh, then indeed you are hearing Wokeness talking. And I would encourage your listeners and I know you have many, to make an appointment with their pastor, their elders, whoever it may be, and sit them down and graciously talk through their convictional concerns. And if the leadership does not change course, does not repent, that's what they should do, uh, then it is time for you to find a new church, and you should do so uh, with wind in your sails, because you do not want to be taken captive by godless ideology, Colossians 2.8. And if you have a family— as many folks will, you don't want them to be taken captive. You want to sit under sound doctrine, and you want to sit under the ministry of Christ's gospel, which is not a gospel fundamentally of of racial hostility. It is a gospel of fundamental unity through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's at stake if the Church veers off course, as it sometimes does, uh, with critical race theory and becoming woke, reflecting the culture rather than the gospel? What's going to happen is what happened 100 years ago with the social gospel, which tore through evangelicalism like a tornado. Um, Basically, the social gospel took over many churches, many schools, many seminaries, many institutions, missions, agencies, and so on. And it corrupted them. And it caused many uh, one-time evangelical institutions to stop preaching the gospel of the new birth and to start preaching the gospel of cultural change. And to this day, the American mainline is still dying on the vine because of the the introduction of the social gospel roughly 100 years ago. If we do not want that to happen in our time again, basically 100 years later, uh, we are going to have to fight like crazy, not fighting out of hatred of flesh and blood, uh, fighting out of love, love for God, love for God's truth, and love for image bearers. And church members, we don't want taken captive by these ideologies. We know how this story plays out. It played out just 100 years ago. There are books, dozens of books, written about the effects of the social gospel. And uh, it's going to happen again. It is now playing out in real time again. Satan is using a racialized social gospel in our day. And it is time for every Christian to get to the ramparts. It is time for every Christian to get to the wall. One of the major ways... You can do that, whether you are in ministry or not, whether you ever spend a minute in a seminary class or not. It does not matter. 
you can get equipped on these issues. You can read a book like mine, Christianity and Wokeness. You can pick up Bodie Bauckham's Fault Line. Mm-hmm. You can get Jeffrey Johnson's What Every Christian Needs to Know About Social Justice. And you can get equipped. And then you can start talking to people in your church, in your social group, in your workplace, in your school, and you can take a stand. And oftentimes, you actually don't need 6,000 people to take a stand for it to be effective. In many cases, the fire is lit by just one person in a community, in a church, in whatever environment it may be. So do not think that you are too small for the task and that God cannot use you because perhaps you may not be in ministry. That is a lie. God will use a Christian as salt light in incredible ways if we will stand on the Word of God. Amen. We're talking about Christianity and wokeness. I should mention that you have a recommended uh, recommended reading list, which is very helpful. You have some secular sources to understand wokeness uh, from proponents, as well as understanding wokeness from non-Christians and to answer wokeness for Christians. So that's in the book, as well as a glossary of terms as you're hearing them used to understand what's meant by them so that we can speak clearly and with understanding about this this issue in our day. Once again, the book is titled Christianity and Wokeness, How the Social Justice Movement is Hijacking the Gospel and the Way to Stop It. The book is published by Salem Books, just out, and I would highly recommend you read it if you want to be relevant and understand what's happening in the culture. I think you need to, to do so with, you know, on your knees praying, God, how would you use me to speak truth to the culture and to the church uh, as needed. Uh, Dr. Strand, I am so grateful for you and your willingness to stand on truth and equip fellow believers so that we can honor Christ in our day here in the 21st century. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, those are very gracious words. I appreciate you very much, Georgine, and thank you for having me on. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. By the way, if you happen to be in your car and didn't get the title of the book, you can go to The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or kpdq.com. You can call the office. We want to make sure you get Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, according to a new survey, Hispanic Protestant churches are young, they're first generation, and they're growing. Praise God, the church is growing. Well, Hispanic churches here face unique challenges, but they're finding success in building community within their congregations and reaching those outside their walls. That's what the church is supposed to do. Well, LifeWay Research partnered with two dozen denominations and church networks to include what's likely the largest number of Protestant Hispanic congregations in the U.S. ever invited to a single research study. Sponsored by LifeWay Research, Courses or something like that, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Samaritan's Purse, the study surveyed 692 pastors of congregations that are at least 50 percent Hispanic. For decades, the Hispanic population in the U.S. has been growing exponentially, and it is imperative for churches to be informed about the specific needs of this community. So says the director of global publishing for Lifeway uh, Recursus. Uh, This study, uh, this study, Uh, will help us to continue the ongoing conversation on how to serve our brothers and sisters in a more strategic way. Because the body of Christ, while we label ourselves as being of one ethnic group or another, is one single body called to one single purpose. Well, the study revealed 
uh, a picture of Hispanic churches that are never uh, that are newer, rather younger and more effectively evangelistic than the average U.S. Protestant church. Something to be learned there. Most Hispanic Protestant churches, about 54 percent, have been established since 2000, including 32 percent founded in 2010 or later. Fewer than one percent or one in ten, nine percent trace their history prior to 1950. Not only are the churches relatively new, but most people in the congregations are also new to the United States. The majority are first generation Americans at 58 percent born outside the country and a quarter are second generation at 24 percent with parents who were born outside the U.S., while 17 percent were born in the U.S. to parents who were also born in the U.S., As a result, a majority conduct their services only in Spanish at 53 percent, with 22 percent being bilingual. Well, half of the churches, about 50 percent, are in a large metropolitan area with a population of 100,000 or more. Around three in 10 or 31 percent are located in smaller cities and nine percent in rural areas and some in the suburbs as well. Well, then in the average Hispanic Protestant church, a full third of the congregation is under the age of 30, including 18% under 18. Now, this is unusual in the church in America. Another 38% are aged 30 to 49, 28% 50 or older. The growth in the number of Hispanic churches in the uh, in the U.S. has been remarkable. Scott McConnell, executive director of LifeWay, points out, And while some of these congregations were started within Anglo churches, 14 percent of Hispanic uh, Hispanic congregations in this study currently are conducting services within a church that is predominantly non-Hispanic. The missional impetus has clearly come from within the Hispanic community itself, as two thirds of these congregations are led by first generation immigrant pastors. In U.S. um, Hispanic Protestant churches, the average worship service attendance is about 115. Like most other churches, they've not yet fully recovered from the pandemic. In January of 2020, prior to the COVID pandemic, the average attendance was higher at about 136. Still, 13% of churches are currently around their pre-pandemic levels, and 32% say they've grown in the past three years, despite the pandemic. Almost every Hispanic Protestant pastor at 99% agrees, including 94% who strongly agree Their congregation considers scripture the authority for their church and their lives. Again, something to be learned from the Hispanic church. Around seven in 10 say their church has the financial resource it needs to support the ministry, which includes some aspects uh, that are common among most other Protestant congregations. Most Hispanic Protestant churches say they regularly offer weekly adult small groups or Bible studies, weekly prayer meetings, weekly children's small groups. Fewer have weekly youth small groups, weekly young adult small groups, uh, one-on-one discipleship or mentoring, evening large group Bible studies, or evening praise and worship. Just 3% say they offer none of these. So these are vibrant, growing churches that are extending ministry, uh, not only within their congregations, but uh, growing as well. When asked about moving weekend wor- uh, worship services um, participants to small groups, 42% of the pastors say At least half of their adult churchgoers are involved in group Bible studies, including those who say at least 75 percent are connected to small groups as well. Around a third say fewer than one in four churchgoers also are member of small group Bible studies, including pastors who say none of those attending worship services are involved in groups. And that's only nine percent. 
Um, As to what hinders their congregation from participating more regularly in church activities, most pastors point to long work hours for their churchgoers at 61%. Others say extended family gatherings, uh, personal hardships or crises. Around a quarter point to recreational or entertainment pursuits and lingering fear of COVID. Fewer say sports activities, a preference to watch online a lack of transportation, or caregiver responsibilities. Well, many of the activities within the Hispanic uh, Protestant churches look similar to those of non-Hispanic churches in the U.S., with worship services, prayer meetings, Bible studies, Sunday school classes being common. But pastors of Hispanic congregations are quick to point out immigrant families often have less time for church as many are working long hours, have family traditions, and are impacted by American culture, uh, cultural distractions. The same challenge as the broader church. Well, almost four in five pastors at U.S. Uh, Hispanic Protestant churches say they regularly schedule opportunities for members to go out and share the gospel. Now, this is exciting to me. There's an emphasis in on evangelism, and that uh, tends, according to the survey, to be higher among Hispanic congregations than uh, the church at large <clears throat> as a whole. Specifically, most pastors say their outreach activities in the past year included church members inviting people to church using social media to share church activities, children's special events like VBS, Easter egg hunts or fall festivals, community programs like food distribution, toy giveaways or providing clothing and church members sharing the gospel in conversation. Additionally, some congregations did door-to-door evangelism at about 30%, evangelism training about half, and provided financial support for a new church start. Hardly any church say that they have not been able to do any of these recently. Well, their outreach seems to be effective, um, as uh, close to half, say 10 or more people, have um, indicated a new commitment to Christ in the past year, including 24 percent who have been uh, have seen 20 or more uh, conversions, fewer than one in 10 report no new commitments at all. So, again, the Hispanic church, according to this Lifeway study, is vibrant. It's growing and it has an emphasis on evangelism. And that um, is exciting. Also, building community as new members join the Hispanic Protestant churches, they become part of the congregations that are actively trying to grow together in community. Pastors point to numerous activities as uh, a vital to building a strong sense of community within their congregations. At least nine in 10 say praying together, studying the Bible together. And again, that's 96 percent, 95 percent, respectively, choosing to get along and promoting unity, welcoming those from different cultures and backgrounds, choosing to be transparent and accountable with one another and checking in or noticing when others are absent are very or extremely important aspects of unity in the church. Among pastors of U.S. Hispanic Protestant churches, I can get this out, 93% are Hispanic themselves. Almost all are um, the senior or only pastor of a congregation, while 5% are Hispanic uh, campus pastors with a multi-site church. More than half serve as full-time pastors, 27% of bivocational, and about 10% part-time. Uh, theologically, four in five or 79 percent of U.S. Hispanic pastors of Protestant churches are self-identified as evangelical. Around one in six say they're mainline. So a glimpse at the uh, the vibrant, growing and effective evangelistic focused churches, Hispanic churches across the United States, setting an example for the broader body of Christ in America.
want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.